I have found that it's all about vulnerability because and vulnerability is scary and I used to see it as a weakness. I realized retrospectively that I've always valued vulnerability. Hey fam, welcome to Uncommon Good. This is the podcast where we talk with ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm your host, Polly Reese. Y'all, fam, so excited to be with you today. This is the premiere of the first ever full-length audio episode. Yay! My guest, you heard her a little bit, that's Michelle Oti. Michelle is the Managing Director of Cambridge Innovation Center Philadelphia, that's CIC Philly, to those of y'all in the know. They are part of the global network of Cambridge Innovation Center, a co-working space. Here in Philly, we record a lot of our live episodes from the Brigantine Podcast Studio, also on the property. They also have an incredible amount of lab space. I wish I knew something about science enough to know how important that is, but I just trust from the life-saving work that they do that they got this. Michelle and I, oh, wow, that conversation talking about growing up as a young woman in Philly, talking about navigating queer identity, talking about the world of work. Y'all, before she got to CIC Philly, she was the director of Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax Cryobank, that's incredible. Please enjoy my conversation with Michelle. We were talking about this before we turned the mics on. Um, but breakfast. Okay. I personally love a good breakfast. I'm a coffee person. Okay. Um, how do you, do you take coffee? I do. I never used to, and then once I got into my postdoc at Penn, I yeah. started caffeinating probably too much, and have developed quite a love of fancy coffee. <laughs> Ooh. Um. What is what is your Starbucks order? Uh, cold brew. Cold brew. Okay. Yeah. Um. What's the like the cream level, the cream and sugar level? Yeah, so not so much with the sugar. I definitely like a little bit of uh-huh. sweetness, um, a natural sugar, so maybe a simple syrup, sometimes Got vanilla. You. And I have taken to oat milk recently. But that is, and I'll drink cold brew all year. I don't care if it's 30 degrees or mm-hmm. 80 degrees, I'll do cold brew. But then I do really love a perfect cappuccino. Mm. No sweetener at all. Just nice, beautiful, f- fluffy, perfectly textured milk. Yes. Maybe that, like a fancy little. Like, I love a design. Yeah. Give me a design on my cappuccino, and I'm happy. Shout out to um, Elixir. Yes. Like in the in the ground floor, like they they are always right there, ready for the ready for like the two thirty like support system. Yes. You know, I'm so happy for them, and I'm so happy for you that we have them in the building. As am I, as is my entire team, as is as are all of our clients. <laughs> Let's talk about the team. Let's talk about the clients. Sure. Um, so you've been with CIC uh, here locally in Philly. I believe you, you, you started just like turn, turn of the year. It was January 10th was my start date. What has that transition into this work been like for you? Um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, a little bit tiring. (laughs) I was at my previous job for 15 years. So starting a new job after 15 years of 
basically the same thing. Yeah. Was it was eye opening and challenging and physically and mentally tiring, but also yeah. very energizing. Hmm. Um, moving into this space, moving into the CIC world of innovation and the f- having the freedom to experiment and yeah. it's okay if something doesn't work, try it. Yeah. You know, the, the uh, owning the idea of entrepreneurship and innovation in this space has been really exciting. Hmm. So it's great to, it's, it's been great for me to really learn something new, come mm-hmm. into a field that was novel to me um, and to get to know this insanely talented team that we have here on site. They're yes. so quirky and eclectic and interesting. And everybody has such different backgrounds and experiences that they bring to the team mm-hmm. that it's just, it inspires so much. It, it's, it's so energizing to be a part of it. Ooh, that's that it's it's nice when when there's energy that you can receive mm-hmm. from places where you work from places where where you you live and move as opposed to needing to needing to add to it yes needing yeah. to provide that energy right? yeah is there anything that when you think about the transition from um Fairfax cryobank yes. into into cic are there anything um that you notice that feels like very familiar like things that things that are, are more or less similar or the same? You know, I was in a leadership role there. Yeah. I'm in a leadership role here. And yeah. so with that comes a lot of the same uh, feelings of responsibility. Hmm. But my approach is slightly different, and yeah. I have more freedom to do things differently sure. since I've joined CIC. Um, I was not... Uh, I wasn't top dog at Fairfax. I, sure. I, you know, I was I was the lab director and director of operations for yeah. the cryobank, and I loved it. Clearly, I loved it. I stayed for 15 years. It was incredibly rewarding work. But coming in and being the managing director of the site, I've been able mm-hmm. to really tweak my leadership style, learn mm-hmm. more about myself, and how I can incorporate some of my more um, natural and intuitive sort of servant leadership. Yeah. Um, aspirations Mm -hmm. to my day to day. Uh, Whereas having been in a role for 15 years, you sort of fall into a routine. Mm. And I think the reset for me was really important. It came at the perfect time in my life. Um, I think I shared with you outside of this podcast that it felt like the universe conspired to get me here. Yeah. Um, And the familiarity of being in a leadership role is great, but also the newness of being able to follow my instincts and intuition has been really um, empowering. One of the things um, that I heard um, in that piece is is the aspiration of servant leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I'd love to know, um, since that's an aspiration for you, mm-hmm. um, where does that come from? It feels very natural to me Mm -hmm. and I think it so much of who I am is traced back to my family of origin and my education um you know I'm I'm from Philadelphia I come from a blue collar Philly family my dad was a mechanic a machinist sorry and my mom was a nurse slash office manager Mm -hmm. they worked very hard and tried to get my brother and I into great schools through college they did everything they could to support that and really just to really encourage 
us to do our best so that we could have better than they had. Mm. Um, both of my parents grew up without very many means. Yeah. Um, money was always an issue. Financial instability was sort of like, you know, always there in the background. And so I grew up with this idea that I, I didn't want to be an adult in the same way. Uh-huh. And the way that uh-huh. I saw that I could live differently was if I could make a difference I would not just be lifting up myself. I would be lifting up others. And to me, that seemed the best way to find myself in a more secure place than what my parents had experienced. And so when I think of servant leadership, it is looking at the needs of the individuals that are in a team as opposed to just the bottom line. Right. So. For me, when I've been in positions of leadership ever since I was in college as the like student government, it was always about the needs of the community yeah. and figuring out how what I was doing could make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels good. It feels good to make a difference. It feels good to put that positive yeah. energy into the world. Um, what did you do? What role did you hold in student government? <laughs> so. I was super shy as a kid, like painfully shy. And it took me until probably my senior year of high school, freshman year of college to really break out of that. And I really wanted to be student government president, like so bad. So sophomore year, I became the class president. And then junior, I was class president. And then senior, I was president of our executive board. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I did go to a small all-women's college, uh, Rosemont College, out on the main line here. Shout out to Rosemont. Shout out to Rosemont. It was amazing. And... I had also gone to an all-girls high school, and that single-sex education afforded me opportunities that I don't know that I would have had Hmm. in a co-ed environment because I was so painfully shy. Um, And part of that was struggling with my own sexual identity, and that made me even more shy. And so being in a supportive all-women's environment where it was not only okay, but expected for us as women to step up and be leaders yeah. was so empowering. And so I loved student government. And I actually joke with people that, yes, I have a PhD in genetics and cell biology, right. but really my <laughs> jobs that I have had, my successes have been because of those other outside leadership roles. Like student yes. government really helped me to find my voice. Um. Was there ever any sort of like awkward mean girls energy like in the circles that you ran in with like high school or college? You know, I was really lucky. I, I'm sure there was, but I didn't really experience that. I sort of sought out friends that were, I I joke that we were like a pile of puppies. We were all just (laughs) like so supportive and affectionate and kind to one another. And there were some girls, like there was one exchange in high school I'll never forget, actually. We chose our senior prom theme. I'm aging myself here, dating myself. But we chose These Are Days by 10,000 Maniacs. And mm. one of the, like, cool girls was like, I don't want that freak song for my prom theme, you know? (laughs) And I I actually, it was the first time I ever stood up to somebody that felt like a bully. And I was like, why is it a freak song? It's a beautiful song about you know, owning our memories and experiencing the moment. And it was it was so funny because she was like, all right, whatever. You know, it just sort of <laughs> moved on. But that was really it. Like our my high school, I went to Nazareth Academy and mm. the girls that that formed my friend group, we were all just so sort of snugly and kind and supportive to one another. You know, we would get together on Fridays and watch Grease. 
We yeah. didn't do anything, you know, before I knew what all the jokes meant in Greece. <laughs> <laughs> I was very naive, very naive. Um, but no, like it was grade school was the bullying time. That was yeah. with the mean girl cliques. And I just, I never felt like I knew my place. And I was very lucky to have supportive friends in high school and college. One of the things that that you're talking about um, that I, that I want to circle back to is this space of um, the the relational piece because as, as I walk around I'm, I'm a client here at CIC um, I sit in co-working um, and have like my personal favorite nooks in um, the work that you've done to cultivate um, the the feel of this place and in the work of your predecessor is that there's intentionality around um, a collegial space mm-hmm. while it's also still very much like a, a professional working environment exchanges of, of value are happening like every day i feel like that must be like a difficult line to sort of like draw negotiate and and discern that's that's an interesting perspective i will share that when i was interviewing for this job sure the first time i came on site I was in awe. This is yeah. not like any other workspace I've ever seen. Yeah. And with my lab background in my postdoc, I was in, I wasn't a sub basement. It was like a, it was supposedly grounds level, but literally the only window we had in the lab looked onto a sidewalk where I saw <laughs> sneakers all day. So coming into yeah. this space where there's all this beautiful natural light and intentionality about yeah. the purpose of the space was it was almost shocking. I was like, mm. how do I have to work here? Mm. Um, and since joining, being part of the team and possible expansion sites that we're considering and design of other expansion sites, mm-hmm. it has become crystal clear to me that that intentionality starts from day one. Yeah. That the design of the space, the, um, the way that the hallways are laid out to lead to light is so purposeful and it adds so much all of the glass the transparency it's not just about transparency for the light it's transparency in our mission in our communication Mm. it's also intentional and it's every level from the from our ceo you know through to the leadership team through to the you know the community associates that are keeping this space so pristine and Mm. and comfortable and welcoming and it is interesting to because you want people to be comfortable yeah but you also it is a professional environment and so i have found that people in the space have been very respectful of it every once in a while something will come up where it's like "Mm, we are dancing that fine line but let's have a conversation about it and in the seven plus months that I've been here, it has been about the communication. Mm. So if there is something that's unclear, if there is something that is dancing that line and we're not sure if it's, you know, a little too cash versus yeah. too, too stuffy, it's about communication. It's about talking about purpose and intention and why somebody is doing what they're doing and why our expectation is what it is. So transparency and communication, that's my big shout out. Respectful, kind communication. I want to um, circle around to a, a detail um, that you mentioned as we were as we were talking about um, the podcast today. Okay. Um, and you mentioned that you have this beautiful um, Lisa Frank <laughs> journal, which for me was like, 
like being being like the queer the queer kid like that I, that I was 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 always like the holy grail that mm-hmm. one in a male body was not never allowed to have. Yeah. Um, can you tell me the story of the journal? Sure. So, I clearly when I was very young, my mom saw in me some things that she saw in herself. Like my mom used very to write cool. poetry and. Um, after she passed, I actually found a poem that she had written behind a photo, and it's lo- I don't even know who it's about. It's a little, yeah. it's a little mystery, but it's beautiful. And she had this light about her early in her life, and she saw that in me, mm. and so she bought me this Lisa Frank Caris- Carousel Horse notebook that awesome. I turned into a journal. Awesome. And I used to write little passages. I was, I think, about seven or eight when she first gave it to me. And as a kid, I loved all the music that my dad loved. So my dad was a huge Beatles fan Mm. and a John Lennon fan and Paul McCartney, all of them. And the Imagine album was, I I stole his tape. And I would listen to it Mm. over and over again. And even as an eight-year-old, I felt so passionate about equity I just I didn't understand bullying it hurt it hurt me to see other people get hurt I was a very sensitive kid and I would listen to imagine and I would just it it bewildered me like why couldn't we all live this way and so I had written this little passage of like John Lennon was right imagine is so beautiful why does there have to be war why are people mean and I I can see myself in my little like Peter Pan collar shirt with the ribbon bow and I like ran down to my mom who was vacuuming I can picture the brown vacuum cleaner and the green rug. Yeah. Very early 80s. Yeah. And I, I was like, Mom, Mom, you have to read this. And yeah. she just, it it was this moment between us. Oh, my God. I'm getting emotional. My mom passed a couple of years ago, so I'm just um, mm. a little emotional about it. But it was this beautiful moment where I felt seen by her, and I think she felt seen by me as a kid. Mm. And she she just told me she was proud of me and that she loved that I was that sensitive. And mm. so I do still have it. And it's it's in storage somewhere with all my other journals and diaries and everything. And I have to dig it out. But amazing. I love that. I love that. I had that yeah. moment with my mom as a kid. One of the things um, that that seems to be a recurring theme as as I talk with more people on the show is this this project of being seen. Yeah. And what the work of being seen does does for us as people. Yeah. What do you think it would take for us to get to a place where m- where more often more of us are being seen? Yeah. I know that this is a big topic. So feel free and start wherever you want. Yeah, it it is, but it's I think that it's important as individuals and in my experience, as beautiful as that moment was with my mom, in the end, we didn't end up at that place because um, I came out when I was in college and I had to actually come out to my mom twice because Mm. the first time she completely blocked it out. And then the second time when I brought something up, she's like, what are you, what are you talking about? And I'm like, we, we had that whole conversation in my bedroom when yeah. you were really angry. Don't you remember? Because I yeah. do. Um, and we never really got over that, okay. um, which is, I always joke, I don't know if you're familiar with the last unicorn book or movie. 
no, no it's my it's my birthday movie i always watch Ooh. it on my birthday but it's a cartoon america did the soundtrack but in it it's about this woman this unicorn who like transfigures into a woman and then has to rescue all the other unicorns but in it she says unicorns don't have regret and i always joke that i'm a unicorn because i try not to regret but if i have a regret it's that my mom and i didn't find that piece before she passed Mm -hmm. um and and that place where we were both seen because i think she struggled through her life to feel seen yeah and as a queer person who went to catholic school (laughs) through college I really struggled with that as well. And the fact that we couldn't connect in that way was hard. Um, so I know personally that's where it comes from for me. But I I have always found it important to help others to be seen. Mm-hmm. When I'm having a conversation with someone, I want to actively listen. Mm-hmm. I want to make that eye contact. And I th- I have found that it's all about vulnerability. Sure. Because, and vulnerability is scary. And I used to see it as a weakness. I was I, I bought into this idea that if you're vulnerable, you're weak. Mm. And then I read Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Yes. Um, and it really helped me frame things differently to realize that there is strength in showing up vul- with vulnerability, yeah. in being honest. And I realized retrospectively that I've always valued vulnerability. I Mm. love when people admit that they're wrong. I love when people ask questions. I love admitting I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. I love changing my mind when I get more information. And to me, that's how I feel most seen is when I could admit, I don't know something, help Mm. me to learn it. The more I learn, the more I realize there is to know and learn. Mm. Um, And I'm not shy about admitting a mistake, admitting I'm wrong, because there's power in that. It's giving another person the opportunity to show up. It's Mm -hmm. giving another person the opportunity to teach, which is another part of being Mm -hmm. seen, I think. You named it that by and large that vulnerability is seen as a weakness rather than as an asset to to living. Um, Why do you think that that is? Traditional gender roles. Mm. I think it's a big part of it. I think, you know, it, myself growing up, my dad was a Vietnam vet. He was very much yeah. the like, therapy's crap. Mental health is nothing. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> really, sir? Um, is that why there's PTSD issues and alcoholism? Like, you yeah. know, like maybe yeah. mental health care would yeah. have helped all of that. And, and you would have been able to live a fuller life. You know, um, unfortunately, my father passed in right in the middle of the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Mm. and he struggled with addiction his whole life. And, uh, for, it was very much that traditional male machismo sort of, I'm not going to show weakness. I don't, I'm not going to admit that I need because there's so, there's so much fear that can come with need because you're so Mm. vulnerable when you admit something you need. What if that need isn't fulfilled, you know? And I think a lot of it in my experience has come from these, you know, quote unquote gender norms or gender expectations. And Mm. it is so empowering to see and be a part of breaking those stereotypes and those expectations. You know, what does it mean to be a leader? You don't have to be cutthroat and vicious to be a good leader. You don't have to be masculine or have that machismo to be an effective leader. You can Mm. be kind and, supportive and lift others up you know Mm. and 
I've always struggled with male female roles. I've never loved that. I've never I've never bought into that in a very traditional way. Yeah. Made sense when I came out why I didn't like it. Um, mm-hmm. But even in the workplace, I, I, I just the assumption of what somebody who identifies with a more masculine energy or being that that they're better suited for a role than somebody with a more feminine energy or identity. Like it doesn't, yeah. it never made sense to me. And I think a lot of things that are assigned as female values or qualities like vulnerability, supportiveness, kindness, loving, you know, all yeah. of those things, that's powerful to me. And the narrative that because they're female or feminine means they're weaker, I just don't buy it. <laughs> the one of the things I think th- I think that I'm noticing is that um, there is an assumed um, uh, polarization that there is that there is strength and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen like if we if we allowed ourselves to just have like the tiny little bit of um, vulnerability around some of the some of these assumed polarities Mm -hmm. that sort of govern the way that we do things yeah bottom line i think if we do away with this binary polarizing way of thinking Mm. or can shift away from it it's only going to add value Mm. you know when there are diverse voices in a room you have different perspectives Mm. it adds value and when you when one can get away from the idea that it has to be A or B, male or female, you know, ketchup or mustard <laughs> on your hot dog. <laughs> you know, when you get away from it has to be one or the other and just allow people to be who they are, they can show up more authentically. Yeah. We can all show up more authentically, which then allows us to bring more of ourselves, mm. which allows us to do a better job. Yeah. You know, and and to be present and to be seen. I think it's all it all ties back into that. And mm-hmm. then we can see how we can contribute and how we add value. And then also, what do we owe to each other? What can I do for you? What can you do for me? How can we make our time together valuable and enjoyable? Yeah. There's been a lot of shift to like how we work, how we how we need to work. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk with me about um, what it has like been like to lead an organization while we're sort of in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But so, well, we are in a pandemic. We're sort of under significant um, business impact considerations. Yes. But also sort of not and trying to transition away yeah. from impact of daily life. Yeah, it's been really interesting, especially in this space, because we do everything here at CIC in Philly. We do everything from the co-working space to private offices, to mm-hmm. conference rooms, to labs, mm-hmm. uh, both shared and private. And I have to say that coming in during a pandemic, it, it was very clear to me early on that our executive leadership had a very similar approach and philosophy to what I took with the pandemic, sure. which was sure. it is all of our responsibility to do what is right for the most vulnerable within our community. Hmm. And that meant the world to me. Um, I am somebody that has a chronic condition and I'm on immunosuppressive medication and so am higher risk yeah. for 
significant effects of COVID. And so coming into an organization where the executive leadership all the way through to um, the on the ground staff had the same approach of we're going to mask, we're going to do testing, we're going to require vaccinations, we're going to have a system to check in and make sure that everybody coming into our space was being as safe as possible. There was a lot of value in that. And I I do believe that it made a significant impact on the community because they felt protected. They felt like we as an organization had their best interests in mind when we were making decisions. Mm -hmm. I had some lovely emails from clients throughout the last seven months when we've tweaked or changed our policies, um, thanking us for being so thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And for example, we have aligned with the city of Philadelphia when it comes to the mask requirements um, in terms of like when there's a higher hospitalization and death rate, we move to requiring masks. When the rates drop to a certain metric, we, you know, drop the mask requirement. But in all the communications, I was very careful to say masks are optional. Please be respectful of those choosing to mask. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, being in this space where as a business, you know, we're renting space for people to work. And yeah. Yeah. in the midst of the pandemic, yes, co-working client numbers dropped, private office clients dropped, unless it was a small office where people had distance. Um, the one area that didn't we'll call it suffer is the labs because you can't really do your bench work at home right (laughs) or you don't want to yeah you know you don't want to if you're doing bacteriology you don't want to invite that into your house if you're doing cell culture you can't really have cell lines living in your house um let's just do like a massive like 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 trading spaces like (laughs) thing but instead of making over our living room into an update we'll turn it into like a clean room absolutely i'm i would be there for that i'm down yeah um but the labs never you know some of the labs i know in my previous role we went to skeletal skeleton staffing where it was just enough people to do the basic operations yeah but as we've moved through the pandemic as more people are vaccinated as more people have developed immunity and we can be safer um we are seeing people coming back into the co-working space back into the offices the labs are uh, you know hopping um but we're doing it safely Mm -hmm. and there is synergy and uh, in the dynamic of being one-on-one in or being in a a group meeting in person there is energy that we share that way but i don't want to devalue the importance of hybrid Mm. meaning zoom or or whatever platform google meet or you know yeah i don't know what other platforms there are like you know to do hybrid events and um meetings because number one it's accessible right you know, mm-hmm. for, for those who are still at high risk and not able to be vaccinated or um, those who have physical, you know, are differently abled that maybe can't can't as easily travel to and from spaces for mm-hmm. meetings, having that hybrid accessibility is really, it's lovely and really uh, can relieve some stress. So. Yeah. We, I can say, are, you know, looking to really update our event space uh, technology to improve the quality of hybrid events. Yeah. You know, working to keep some hybrid meetings or hybrid accessibility. And I've really appreciated that some of the organizations that we're a part of, like the Chamber of Commerce or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Life Sciences PA, they have done these hybrid events where it's in person, but you can also stream. 
And there's yeah. real value to that yeah. Yeah. based on both physical accessibility, but also socioeconomic as- accessibility. Gas is insanely expensive still. I know it's going down, but it's still expensive. Yes. You know, some people have not got, you know, gotten to a place where they're comfortable in public transportation again. And so having mm-hmm. those options, I think it, it's a different way of working and meeting and being together, but there's still value in it. Yeah. I, I want to shout out as well that it feels like there's a lot of intentionality around the physical space of CIC about being accessible as, as someone who, as someone like who, who in my um, later, mo- most later is not fair, most recent years, um, <laughs> I, I got corrected by that, by, by, by by a friend that you're, that you're still very young Paul. <laughs> very very yes um thank you um <laughs> vanity um <laughs> i love that <laughs> no I, I, but no i got corrected by a friend by a friend about this um in my mo- in my more recent years where um there has been some need for accommodation around physical capacity to work um these are things that I've that I've come to notice a little bit more in the more time that I've spent like understanding how disability works and how it works for me and and um, like building like my team of supporters that um, the um, the hallways are nice and level. There's a lot of light. Um, the the security doors and gates swing very slowly, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, and a lot of things are touchless. Um, I I, I, w- I want to appreciate that as well. Um, that there's there's capa- there's something in the org that I see which represents a commitment to actualizing aspiration. Yes. What does it take to actualize a mission and vision into practical pieces of change? That is a fantastic question. Very thoughtful. Um, it's in my experience, it has been about the way you see it, the approach hmm. that you take. If you look at it as a burden, hmm. it's going to feel burdensome. If you look at it as an opportunity to add value, it feels more valuable. Yeah. And so we recently converted two of our floors from just office to um, a mix of office and lab. Hmm. And in doing that, we were very thoughtful and intentional about the placement of the spaces, about reintroducing an ADA compliant phone booth about mm-hmm. ensuring that the access to that space was appropriate but also felt active and good and positive. Mm. Um, you know, we are developing and working with a potential muralist to add some beautiful art, a local yeah. artist, to yeah. add some beautiful art on our seventh floor yeah. and to sort of activate the space and draw mm-hmm. people in. The, the company at large is incredibly intentional about activation of space and mm. feeling intentional. And so in managing the local site, our director of ops, Anna, is so thoughtful about how the space is used currently and if there are other asks, if there are other ways that we can do it to make mm-hmm. it even more accessible or um, activate it in a different way that will add value. We all have, as a leadership team, and and actually our entire team, are so conscious and conscientious about the client's needs, but also our experience in the space. You mm-hmm. know, for example, we relaunched our wellness room, 
And it's this beautiful space on our fifth floor that you can dim the lights. It has soft seating. It has some more um, structured seating, huge space. There's yoga mats. You can meditate. There are poofs to sit on. Um, we've introduced massages for the staff and we'll be introducing them for clients mm. um, as an option that clients can uh, yeah. work with these amazing masseuses that we have been working with. I um, look forward to it. Oh, y- seriously? Mama Paula is amazing. Can't wait. She's <laughs> the most incredible hands and she's so intuitive. Yeah. Amazing. Um, as is Angela, the other the other masseuse that we have on staff or contracted with as well. But it, with that wellness room, that feature, I think it uh, for the entire time that I had started, it was closed because mm-hmm. of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so being able to reintroduce that and make sure that it is accessible, that, you know, the the space is flexible yeah. is really important. And yeah. I've noticed that like, coming into our space. A lot of our spaces have a purpose, but they're also flexible. And there's something really beautiful about that and very human, I think, about that because like this podcast room, yes, we're using it for a podcast room, but maybe mm-hmm. somebody else has another idea and can use it for something else. Yeah. You know, the wellness room is meant for massages, also mm-hmm. meditations or honestly just, uh, you know, I go in to take a break, shut out the world for five minutes and have yeah. a moment of quiet. People use it for prayer. Yeah, It's you know the the flexibility and adaptability of some of the spaces is really cool the sixth floor kitchen which is everyone's favorite because it's (laughs) so beautiful yes great views of the city incredible soft seating the Mm -hmm. plants are gorgeous there's tomato plants growing you know the smoothie station is there like there's you know we've got the taps with the bubbly water um you know so it just but it feels so welcoming it can also be used for meeting space it can Mm -hmm. also be used for individual Mm -hmm. meetings you know we've used it for lunch and learns with sponsors we've used it Mm. just to hang out you know and take a break and connect with one another so the flexibility of the space i think really adds to what you were asking we all we all know we have work to do Mm -hmm. like and we're and we're all at least reasonably good at doing it Uh, most um, most of us are yeah most 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 of us are um but um the I, I, that that sort of level of, of care, um, I think across disciplines and industries is um, refreshing. Yeah, thank thank you. I love hearing that because it feels very real to me yeah. on this side of things as yeah. an employee of the company. But I love hearing that from the client perspective. Yeah. And you know, we did a a survey a couple weeks ago. Um, like a satisfaction survey for the clients. And it was really lovely just to go through some of the comments that were submitted and to see, um, you know, people really do value Hmm. the space in a way that they're experiencing it as more than just a place they're working in. For our guests who who might be visually impaired, um, the the camera today I I'm wearing um, this really lovely like tunicky like top. Beautiful color. Thank you very much. Um, we're sitting in a, a a nicely appointed like not irregularly sh- an irregularly shaped room with a sort of like burnt sienna um, paint and some fabric stripping that is helping to to dampen the sound. Um, Michelle is wearing this <laughs> phenomenal sort of like crushy like 
like forest green jumpsuit. That I I'm, love a romper. Yeah, yeah, and I'm and I'm so for so so I am gonna pause us from like the really heavy stuff and be like, um, where did you get it? Because it's awesome. You know, I am a sucker for Instagram ads. Like, nice. I really think I'm their target. It's terrible. If I need to stop it, but I saw an ad for this jump this romper. Um, I believe it's from the Odells. Sweet. Is the name of the company. I'm also a huge fan of the Rachel Antonoff rompers. Sweet. I have a bright yellow one with all different flowers all over it. Yeah. Um, look for sales. Uh, but they're both fantastic. So I do love a good romper. And, and unfortunately, I am a sucker for an Instagram ad. It's almost <laughs> like they're monitoring our data so that they can put almost. those things in front of us in ways that will make us be more likely to purchase yeah, them. Yeah, almost like that. Yeah. Um, Okay, fine. Let's um, <laughs> let's 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 talk about data. Um, like, we we live in this space where so much of our our world is can control, not perhaps not controlled, but significantly impacted by what information is publicly yeah. available mm-hmm. um, about us. When I've worked here, um, as as I've been a client here and, and have done work here, um, I have submitted a bunch of personal information um, so that CIC can um, assess fit mm-hmm. um, between between my business and, and the company, and with what the what the um, the 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 company is trying to create the the vibe of in the the space. I've you have my photo so that when my card swipes, um, you can see whether it's me or somebody somebody uh, who's with with my team or whether somebody's picked up my card, like mm-hmm. walking around on the street because also a klutzy person. Um, not saying that I've dropped my card in the past and gotten <laughs> it washed away in a rainstorm when I was getting off of a SEPTA bus or anything. Oh, wait, I did just say that. You did um, say it. <laughs> but um, so... There's there there are ways there are, I, 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 there are ways that um, data is impacting our lives, yeah. and I guess I I, I want to have I, I wasn't expecting to have this conversation, but I, I'd love to get your take on how we do that in a way um, that is that is generative, yeah. life giving, um, and not. Um, deconstructive, unhelpfully deconstructive. Yeah, I. this is actually a great conversation, I think, and really relevant to what we do here at CIC because there is a lot of data that we collect yeah. and there's, you know, lots of privacy and, and um, like redundancy in our privacy and permissions so sure, that sure. only the appropriate people have access to the information. Um, one of the things that we do, you, you alluded to, which is assess alignment with our mission and Mm -hmm. ensure that the people coming into our spaces um, and the companies coming into our spaces are mission aligned and are contributing to the greater good of the community, to the ecosystem Mm -hmm. that we're a part of. And we have a more formal process for that in place with our lab vetting, where when lab clients and lab prospective clients are coming in, Yes, it's about can they actually physically do their science in this space? Are they the right BSL too? Like safety level? Do they are they using the you know chemicals that are acceptable in this environment with the um, the lab equipment that we provide that, that they're able to bring in? 
But along with that, we're also assessing alignment with values and mission. Mm. And part of the um, session that we have with our prospective lab clients is they present to us their vision and mission for DEIB, which is the mm. diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, mm-hmm. because we want to ensure that we're supporting companies that are supporting people. Mm-hmm. And with labs, a lot of times in lab work, and I'll share this from my own experience, sometimes it can really feel like the light at the end of the tunnel is super far away. Yeah. You know, it's a pinprick way down there because what you're doing today doesn't feel applicable to the individual in the client a lot of the clients that we support are in the cell and gene therapy so that lights a little brighter because they're sure they're looking directly at you know doing research that is going to lead to therapies that are going to treat people and so that's important and that work is important but we want to ensure that they're considering equity that they're looking at how their business is going to grow and scale over time who they're going to employ how they're going to have systems in place that are going to support a diverse workforce, Mm -hmm. how we can contribute to that, how we can make connections for them with workforce development programs in the West Philadelphia area, such as the Bulb program with Science Center or Mm -hmm. with STARS Workforce Development Mm -hmm. Program, where they are helping to lift up individuals from the community who haven't necessarily had the same exposure or access to the same education or uh, resources to get them into the health sciences field. And so making sure that we're aligning and that our missions are aligned, getting companies into the space that are committed to to helping the community Mm -hmm. is so important to us. Mm -hmm. And part of that is them sharing data with us, sharing their plans with us, Mm -hmm. um, sharing their mission and their vision. So we do all of that to, to make a very specific and cultivated community that does support not just internally but within the community and data is so is such an important part of that because that's a metric that's what we can look at you know you can talk all day about wanting to be an inclusive company but at the end of the day if you have you know 75 percent white males 25 percent white females that is not representative of a diverse workforce that is you know yeah that you know you want to see cultural ethnic identity diversity in there and so having those metrics seeing that Mm -hmm. data is really important it's also really helpful to have data on what the current companies are able to achieve what kind of venture capital you know they're being awarded what type of grants are they being awarded that data is also important because it contributes to the overall value of the space in the community mm-hmm. one of the one of the, the things about data that i'm really fascinated about is the process of converting data and metrics into a story mm-hmm. that that a, that the average consumer of information can can relate to mm-hmm. um one of the i think i think one of the pain points about this this neighborhood is that there is there is an enduring legacy of um resettlement and population shift um, yes. urban renewal and gentrification um redlining in in a whole in a whole long history where people are um people are still smarting 
some of that displacement continues continues in in, in our backyard um, we're taping at a time where um, the black bottom community has a little under a, a month to relocate um, after a lot of long fought litigation and demonstrations and protests legitimately right outside of our window yes how do you make data speak in a way that people can understand it yeah you know it as a as a company cac is working to support people within the community by choosing to use vendors Mm -hmm. that are from the neighborhood and so having successful metrics or having metrics that support the idea that utilizing local businesses, mm-hmm. black and brown owners, women-owned businesses, having the, those metrics, it helps us to communicate that to other companies, to communicate mm. that to our partners, to say, look, we've partnered with this local business, and here's our satisfaction score from the clients that attended such and such an event. Mm. And here are the numbers that we were able to draw with this event that utilized you know these local vendors that's been really helpful for us to be able to say like we're not just doing this because we think it's the right thing to do we're also doing it from a business perspective it is positive it is success you know to be able to then support individuals individual entrepreneurs in the in the um neighborhood Mm -hmm. is it feels great it looks good, but it yeah. also leads to success because we've developed relationships and they then have led us to other vendors and led us to others who will come into events and connect. And, you know, it's all about those connections and mm-hmm. using the data to support the value of what we're trying to implement is a way that it communicates well in the in business, right? Yeah. Like saying it was a great event, awesome, quantify it. What does that mean? <laughs> Tell me. And I'm a data person. I'm a scientist. Yeah, yeah. So I want to know how many people attended. What was the satisfaction score? Yeah. You know, if there were uh, comments or suggestions or constructive feedback, what was it? How can we change it? Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to communicate that to partners and getting that kind of data from partners and from other companies, it mm-hmm. helps to inform us who we're going to go to next. So there's a real intentionality about the data that we try to collect around supporting the community, mm. um, you know, and also in in our social impact work that we're doing with our social impact cohort, you know, considering individuals and individual companies that are coming into the space that can then lead to additional connections to grow that work. And I... I just keep coming back to the idea that yes, we are a business. Yeah. Yes, there is a PL statement. We yeah. have to <laughs> we have to, you know, meet our, our benchmarks and our growth. Lights have to stay on. Exactly. We have yeah. to be able to pay our staff and buy all these yummy snacks that are in our kitchens, you know. All respect on that. Yes. Like yeah, respect. Yeah. Right. How much do people love the new cold brew and animal crackers? It's like it's crazy. I didn't know that many people loved animal crackers. And now I'm just singing <laughs> Shirley Temple all the time. Um, but, you know, being able to, oh, I just got derailed by Shirley Temple. How often does one say that? <laughs> oh, 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 that's the, what it the was. The drink or the child actress? The child actress. Okay. I love the Shirley Temple black drink where you add a little vodka. Um, that's just a personal preference. <laughs> I love a good cocktail. That is not my, but just in case we'll circle anybody's, back to that I was going to say, if anybody's wondering, I will talk about my favorite cocktails. Um, but it, it, you know, the bottom line is important yeah. and we are a business, but enabled, 
the revenue and an increased profit margin allows us to do more social impact work. Hmm. So being able to look at the data and say, okay, here's our forecast. If we're X percent over our forecast, that means we can add X percent growth to our social impact give back. Hmm. So I think data just supports it all. Hmm. Well, I mean, we touched on it already. So I would love to talk about cocktails. Um, I'm 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 a bit of a bit of a, a brown liquors kind of gal myself. Okay. Um, what are what are you drinking lately? So, I would say my signature is a perfect gin martini. Oof. I prefer Hendrix. Okay. Two olives, extra cold. Shake it up with that ice for a little bit extra for me because I okay. like it real cold. Okay. And a night I like it real smooth. I have in the past two years started enjoying brown liquors and okay. i love a classic old-fashioned i don't want nice. any of the fancy like i don't need yeah. don't put lavender in it don't try and give me <laughs> rosemary a classic old-fashioned with a luxardo cherry yeah yeah right is that are you an old-fashioned i do i do enjoy them um what what do i what do i drink at home um usually it's um uh, a boulevardier like a like a <laughs> Like a, a Negroni, but with okay. but with bourbon or rye instead. Nice. Like um, a friend. How did I? What got me interested in bourbon? Um, it's always a friend. It's yeah, always it, a friend, it, Polly. It's, it's always it's always a friend. Um, I'll circle back to gin, though. I hope that you have. Have you spent much time in England? Not not so much, but I did do a gin distillery tasting in Holyrood at the Holyrood Distillery in Edinburgh. Amazing. It was a magical experience, and I was very happy. One of the things that I learned when I spent time in England is that like every little town has their own gin mm-hmm. distillery, and so you get these amazing things. Um, and and every every major locality with some sort of um, history of like distillation of whatever spirit it is, England, it's um, gin. Here, it's mm-hmm. bourbon. Um, south of the border, it's tequila and mm-hmm. mezcal. Um, you just, there are just so many beautiful things that you don't get exported because the licensing fees are are, right. are just far too much in the tariffs. Yeah. Um, so so um, I hope so. Who I mean, who knows? Maybe there will be like a Manchester office of of CIC where, mm-hmm. when you're ready for more gin, you can go and be a culture carrier in that office. Absolutely, <laughs> and I am willing to move to Edinburgh, and uh, I would love to be able to get Holyrood's gin, uh, the Old Tam is my favorite of theirs, which is shocking to me because I tend to like things that are a little lighter and yeah. crisp, like citrusier. And that one's like, that's a gin. Like you feel it when you drink it, you know? And I yeah. loved it, loved it. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a super sniffer. So okay. I loved uh, part of their tour was a, um, it was like a quiz oh. and it was identifying scents. Like you would smell a beaker. This totally yeah. appealed to the science and art in me. You would smell a little beaker or something and then you would have to choose what you thought the scent was. Mm-hmm. And I was so angry <laughs> because <laughs> I'm incredibly competitive. If you've played Catan with me, you know this. Shout out to my wife and brother. Um, the, I, I got one wrong on the scent quiz and it was only because I didn't know the words that they were using yeah. were different than the U- like American version of the yeah. words. And I was like, I would have gotten that. <laughs> it was so competitive. <laughs> but I do, I like you, a, a friend introduced my wife and I to bourbon and the first time I ever drank it was in a, um, he had made these for brunch. It was bourbon and 
butterscotch. Um, hmm. Oh, what is it called? Like the butterscotch liqueur with orange juice, which sure. he said it to me. And I was like, ooh. I don't know. And then I tasted it. I was like, may I have another? Like, it was so <laughs> lovely. And that sort of brought my wife and I into the bourbon fold. And and also brunch. And Well, no, I've, I've always been a brunch person. Um, and right before the pandemic, my birthday's in December. Nice. So my wife had gotten me a Prohibition-era cocktail-making class, Sweet. which was so cool and got me into Sazerac's, which is another, mm-hmm. I think it's rye, yep. the little mm-hmm. absinthe. Yep, yep. yep. Um, and then she got me like all of the ingredients to make these things. It was such a cool class. We did like a blackberry smash with the bourbon yeah. and the Sazerac yeah. and yeah. A, um, the uh, Jack Rose, I think it's called, is the other mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. All of those. And I was like, I'm really, it really got me into cocktails, which I had never, I'd always just been like, all right, I'll have, I'll have some wine. Yeah. But I love the I love the science of the cocktails. Yes. The mixology of it all is really appealing to me. Balancing the different flavors and the different mm-hmm. ways that flavors impact like the palate and, and the aromatics. Um, New Orleans, best like long best adult long weekend vacation that I've ever taken. Okay. Um so if you ever need um if you ever need like a like a weekend away. We'll we'll come back to brunch because brunch is always a great thing. <laughs> um but I would, I would love to know a little bit more about where the love of science um, mm. comes from. I will always talk about science forever and ever and ever. And there are times where um, my wife will ask me a question, like, how, why do we need to go into the sun for vitamin D? And she really just wants a quick, dirty answer. Yeah. Like, it, it helps our body to synthesize it. And I break it down. And I can see her <laughs> eyes glazing over. God bless her. Um, you're that you're that friend. I'm I'm that fr- I'm I'm yes I am that friend. I'm basically Ross from Friends when he just bores everybody about dinosaurs. Um, but science has been something that from birth I think I was meant to go into. Like yeah. I loved it. My mom was a nurse. I was the nerdy kid that like when you would play school, yeah. I took it real seriously. I was like in fourth grade writing papers with my mom's microbiology textbook from nursing school, writing mm-hmm. about paramecium and stuff and my friends are like okay now we go to a party and i'm like i have to stay in and do my homework you know like yeah. playing wow so i always loved that and my dad was a big science nerd even though okay. you know he didn't have any like training or education in it we would sit down and we would watch things like um there was this old physics professor julius sumner miller who used to do snippets and a show on pbs Mm -hmm. and he would just do these crazy physics experiments and he was so passionate like he would like scream and yell and then we we would watch like (laughs) mr wizard and yeah you know like all nova like i was watching all of the nova shows and um i loved carl sagan from a very young age Mm -hmm. like i don't know that other Mm -hmm. eight-year-olds knew who carl sagan was but i was quoting his like blue dot you know like we are just that blue dot beyond saturn's uh-huh. rings uh-huh. you know um so i always loved it and then i fell in love with bill nye the science guy and mm-hmm. actually i will admit publicly right now i wrote my graduate school essay my entry essay to thomas jefferson university talking about wanting to be the next bill nye the science guy and they let me in so hey i think that is a success um but i always loved it but what really sealed the deal for me was it was such a weird visual moment for me i was in the fourth grade and one of my classmates parents was a butcher and we were studying science and the classmate's father donated a cow brain 
for us to look at. And as they, one does. As one does. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to look at a cow brain? Three quarters of my class did not want to look at the cow brain. I remember the big silver tray and yeah. the brain sort of sloshing around in it. And how, like three quarters of the class was like, no, thank you. And then like the rest of us were just sort of like gathered around and I'm the one there with my finger. Like, can I touch it? Can I, can I take it apart and see how mm-hmm. it works? And it just, it made it very clear to me that I wanted to understand why things were the way they were, how they worked. I had a great science teacher in sixth grade. I loved biology when I was in high school. I mentioned I went to Nazareth Academy. Yeah. I was very torn between science and art. I loved to draw. I was always mm-hmm. encouraged to draw. Along with all the science, my parents would get me art supplies and encouraged me to draw and let me do, you know, I, as much as we watched Nova and everything, I also watched Bob Ross and Bill Alexander on PBS. Mm-hmm. We were a big PBS family in my house. Nice. Um, along with Monty Python. So, you know, that's perfect. the like perfect balance. Um, but like, so it was, it was painting, it was drawing, it was science. And when I got to high school, I felt very pressured to like, make a decision you know and being in Uh, a college prep school mm. i was very much sort of pushed to the science because you could make more and be more stable and that also appealed because i mentioned earlier like the financial instability yeah part of things so unconsciously as a teenager it made sense to me that i was going to choose a path where i could quote unquote make more money Mm -hmm. little did they know postdocs and grad students get paid nothing I mean, it's better now. Correct. It's, it's better now. It's a little better now. But, you know, being a, a pretend grown up at 22 trying to live on $15,000 a year, not so easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I studied biology in college. That was a bio major. But I had, I was just shy of credits for like a poli sci minor or a philosophy minor or a Spanish mm-hmm. minor. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I was so focused on doing the science part of it. Um, and then in college, I had a molecular biology class my junior year, and it it was like love. It I felt it on a cellular level. I'm like, this, this genetics, molecular yeah. genetics, that's where my heart lives. Like, that makes sense to me. Um, but I didn't like research. I didn't like mm-hmm. it. I went, I did my graduate education at Jefferson. It was an incredible program. I had a great... Um, a great cohort with me. I had experience in a lot of really cool labs. Bench work just wasn't for me. Sure. It just didn't fit. And all of those other experiences of student government and being involved in different clubs, like that was all like pulling me, like find a way to do, to be science adjacent, use your science knowledge, but do other things. And so moving to, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that looked like. Sure. So I went into a postdoc at UPenn at the vet school in Frank DeLuca's lab. And it was really cool work with uh, Mob two, Mob 1 and DBF2. These are proteins that are aberrant in cancers. I was taking, you know, hundreds and hundreds of fluorescent microscopy images of spindle kinase proteins. And it was cool, but it just, it just never felt, it didn't, I didn't have a passion for it. Yeah. I liked the the intellectual part of it i didn't like the hands-on part of it as much it just didn't feel right so you know that that universe conspired again and <laughs> fairfax had opened a site here in philadelphia yeah, and they weren't yeah. looking for my somebody with my experience but it worked out and over 15 years i was able to go from running one site to overseeing multiple labs in various mm-hmm. cities and helping to educate people in the community about family building opportunities yeah. and uh, preservation of fertility with different 
you know, for different purposes, whether yeah. it was, you know, a uh, somebody in a high risk job or, or somebody undergoing medical treatments that would compromise their fertility. So I found real fulfillment in that, in that I mm-hmm. could be in the science, understand the methodology of why we froze the sperm the way we froze the sperm using the media that we chose and the cryopreservation agents. Sure. Being able to communicate that to my staff, but also being able to communicate that to non-scientists. And I always loved that part of it. I love sort of bringing people in and trying to inspire them. Yeah. And I do think my wife would be more inspired about science if I didn't talk about it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um. That was a really long answer. <laughs> no, but it, no, but it was a great answer. The the um comes from the fact that um, my experience of science is reasonably limited. I know just enough of the physics of, of acoustics and sound to be able to do my job properly, mm-hmm. like in as as like a an, an audio professional. Um, <laughs> but um, and, and also having having um, failed the AP chemistry exam, um, <laughs> like being really fascinated with stoichiometry and acid-based mm-hmm. titrations but having none of the skill to be able to replicate it in a testing environment mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but at, at any rate um by the way stoichiometry is one of my favorite words it's such a great word isn't it delightful it just to say? sounds it's i love the way it sounds yeah yeah the, uh, I, I grew up in 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 the mid state in in bustling college town of Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, a, a population of somewhere around twenty five grand at the time, and um, the the chemistry teacher, Mister Holtry, said that stoichiometry is the the heart of um, is the heart of the work about like understanding how how different elements, properties, molecules. Um, all of which I understand are, are words that have specific meanings, which I just butchered. Um, thank you, Dunning Kruger. Um, but um, um, like the the way that they interact with each other and impact each other is, is the heart of yeah. the heart. The it's heart about of relationships. There we go. And and, and now and now we're <laughs> full circle. <laughs> uh, um, here you can you can just have my job for the next ten episodes. Like if you just if you want to spend like hours in the editing bay. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the offer though. Um, so you you touched on the piece of inspiration, um, and I and I think that that piece is is particularly important. Um, yeah. as we're thinking about the world that we live and move in, the world regardless of where you live or what ideology you hold dear. Um, there are very few people that that I know across the wor- world that seem to have the sense that the world is going in a way that that is is the right way it should be going. So what are what other sorts of things people places and ideas um give you inspiration and help lift you up like when when morale is low. Yeah. Travel. Mm. Travel mm. as you know growing up we were not a fa- we were not a family that one had means but also two had the motivation for vacation or travel as much as my mom talked about it and my dad had traveled after his time in vietnam he had been to australia had been to germany you know for his r&r and afterwards he stayed over there a little bit um it never translated to us as a family so one of the things that i was exposed to when i went to high school with a very different type of socioeconomic population yeah. than where i came from was yeah. this idea of travel and so my senior year in high school um 
as a graduation gift, my parents and I split the cost of a post-graduation trip with a group of girls from high school. It was also chaperoned by our dean of students, Sister Delorita, um, <laughs> and a couple of the other teachers. So no shenanigans, basically, is what sure, I'm saying. Sure. Um, it was a bus tour of England, Ireland, and Wales. So the first nice. time I ever got on nice. an airplane, I flew from Philadelphia to Heathrow. No, okay. or, or Newark to Heathrow. Sure, um, yeah. Uh, funnily enough, my boyfriend at the time uh, gave me a letter mm-hmm. in which he told me he loved me that I opened on the plane. It was, it was a moment. It was a. Mo- it, it was, was a like moment. I am winning at heterosexuality, yeah. um, and then I quickly lost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very soon after, um, but the the going on that trip, and even though it was like a rush and bustle of like being on the coach. Uh, going from city to city and seeing stuff, I saw things that were so different than my experience. Mm -hmm. And it made such an impact on me that my, it inspired me so much that I spent the next 10 years of my life trying to work to a place where I could afford to do that kind of travel. And thankfully, um, I choose to love somebody who values something very similar Mm. and we choose Mm. to invest in experience over stuff i mean Mm. i do love stuff i love a good romper you know um but i also really value experience and so we have traveled to edinburgh together we've gone to spain i never wanted to go to france she always wanted to go for our 10-year anniversary we went and spent 10 days in france and it was in paris specifically life altering just seeing how different uh, we're going to italy we've been to curacao like different Mm. places gone to mexico and i i like to experience the local culture not just the tourist experience we had adults in our lives in our early 20s doug and linda who um doug has since passed but they we joke now that they taught us how to be grown-ups. Like we ate at fancy mm. restaurants with them. We traveled with them. And Doug and Linda would always say, be a traveler, not a tourist. Mm. And that made such an impact on us that we think of that every time we travel. Yeah. And I like to see, like when we went to Mexico, we didn't just go to the resort. Like we saw the local experience. We ate the local food. We saw how the locals lived. Yeah. It opens doors. It changes your mind. It gives you more compassion and empathy. Mm. And it helps you see that there's not one right way to do something. Yeah. And so that's where I draw inspiration. I get it from travel, which to me is about food, people, and art. Maybe not in that order. Maybe in that order. But, you know, experiencing things that are outside of my norm helps me to grow. Mm. And that's all I want to do. I, I'm a work in progress. Mm. We're all works in progress. And I just want to keep bettering myself so that I can give more and yeah. help others to realize their potential. Mm. And also locally, good brunch and coffee. Yes. Yeah. I love a good brunch. Yeah. Love a good brunch. Favorite spot here in Philly? It used to be Canela. When there was Canela, oh, it was a 10th and S- Locust or Spruce? Spruce, I think. I, I, I think you're right. But yeah, rest in peace indeed. Yeah. Their fried halloumi. Talk about life-changing inspiration. Yes. Um, I also used to love Farmacia, RIP, yeah. on, was that third? I haven't really, the only place I've gone for brunch since the pandemic is Park because mm-hmm. they have beautiful outdoor seating. Yes, they do. And I will give Park a shout out for what I will call the best omelet in the city. It is the fluffiest, 
most Parisian omelet I've ever had. That proper, like, beautiful, sort of, like, perfectly beaten eggs, little fluffy, runny. little runny, maybe a, in, in the chive, and the maybe chives. a little bit of, like, cheese in the middle. Yeah. It might also be the baguette that does it for me <laughs> because I am a bread connoisseur. Yeah. I would choose, if you put every food in the world in front of me and one baguette, I would choose the baguette every time. Okay. Just, um, I mean, these are really important insights that I have. <laughs> and now I'm thinking about bread. I know. And th- and th- like I'm, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about, um, and and, and thinking about all the poor sour- sourdough starters that suddenly found oh. themselves at the bottom of a bin. Post post lockdown. Post lockdown. Yeah. yeah. Um, I appreciate so much the time that you've uh, you've brought to us. I know that. Um, you you talked me through through your schedule. And I was like, whoa. Um, so our 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 final question, as we're just sort of wrapping up, is, is a little bit about impact and legacy, and that is, um, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Oh, I would. Lo- I mean, it makes me very emotional thinking about that. I would love the world to be kinder. Yeah. I would love the world to be less judgmental. Yeah. I would love to. It's incredibly emotional to think about that. Yeah, kinder. Yeah. I just want people to be respectful and kind to one another and look for ways to lift one another up. That's it. There you go. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for being my, my guest on the show. It's been been wonderful to have you and um, can't wait um, to see what what continues to to happen here the magic here here at cic and the work that you do thank you so much i'm polly i just have to say you are already a favorite client of the staff people <laughs> love having you in the space and i have really enjoyed our time together so thank you cheers cheers there you have it the first episode is in the books thank you so much for tuning in to uncommon good with polly reese if you enjoyed listening to the show Please support the show by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube and Instagram. Follow us, subscribe to us there for video content and more goodies. Thanks for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good. To do your uncommon good. To be the uncommon good.